On the show today to talk about all the big political stories of the week, Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun and Keith Baldry from Global BC. And then with the fledgling school year out of the gate, we'll talk education issues with the president of the BC Teachers Federation, Glenn Hansman. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome to a cloudy and slightly smoky Kamloops. Not sure what it's like in Victoria, but the next two gentlemen will tell me. Uh, welcome Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. Good morning. Lovely day in Victoria. As it always is, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little disconnected from reality, but lovely. <laughs> uh, all right, guys. The first uh, first bit of news out of the gate was probably the biggest news of the week, especially for uh, the, the Lower Mainland. Is this big SkyTrain light rail announcement? This has been an ongoing saga that has been running for decades in this province about building transit and how do you fund it, uh, leading up to that uh, big referendum defeat of, of few, a few years ago, and in a continuing struggle to figure out how the region is going to pay for its share of all of this. Vaughn, I thought you did a pretty good job this week of jumping in on some pretty serious financial questions after this re-announcement uh, from, uh, from the Premier and the Prime Minister this week. It seems we have a lot more questions than answers on the money front. Yeah, this is $4.5 billion for two transit lines, one SkyTrain extension uh, toward the west side of Vancouver, and the other one a, a brand new light rail, surface light rail system in Surrey, $4.5 billion, and of course a big chunk of that is being picked up by all of us as provincial taxpayers and all of us as federal taxpayers and lower mainland regional residents paying some as well. Um, they didn't really tell us that much about why it's costing so much. The, the costs are incredible. Huge escalation in cost to build those two systems. And, uh, of course, the other thing is um, you're raising the issue of how they're going to pay for it. Uh, one of the things that was quite amazing that jumped out of it all is when, when the provincial government said it was going to pick up 40% of the tab for these two transit projects, they said they were matching the federal contribution, which... Silly me, I thought that meant that Ottawa was putting up 40%. No, they're not. They're paying 31% of the cost because the federal government, in its majesty, um, only pays eligible costs. And they get to define what is eligible, and among the things they don't pay for is the cost of inquiring the land on which you're going to build the transit system and the stations and all that. So um, as a result, a, a, a much larger chunk of the tab is being picked up here in British Columbia, I suppose that's right. The systems are going here, but it was a little misleading to pitch this whole thing as we're paying 40%, and so is Ottawa. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, I sort of tongue-in-cheek tweeted out a clip or a quote from uh, Surrey Mayor Linda Hepner from 2014, in which she says, you're going to see light rail on the ground by 2018. I'm incredibly confident. Uh, of course, that was uh, proven to be bunk. Uh, Keith, as far as how the region gets this money, which is an ongoing huge story in this province, uh, any headway on that front? Well, the... Uh Vaughn's right in terms of the, the Fed's costs going down, which meant actually that the regional government side uh, share of this, these projects are going to go up significantly. It's not 20% anymore. It's 28% coming from, uh, from, the, from TransLink, which is the local transit authority, and regional governments in Vancouver and Surrey. And it's interesting that the, the way they finance this, Shane, is really quite odd because there's no provincial money in the Surrey project. It's entirely a federal government TransLink Surrey uh, funded project. It, the federal, the, the provincial money is all in the Broadway subway line, and it's uh, so the two the two uh, projects are quite distinct in terms of funding sources. And I, I 
don't recall that type of model being used before. And one of the implications of that, Shane, is I think the, these community um, uh, improvement agreements, whatever, forget what they're called, the, the union-friendly construction agreements, presumably now will only agreements. apply Broadway subway line and not apply to the Surrey LRT because there's no provincial money in the Surrey LRT. Oh, that's interesting. That was going to be one of my, one of my questions. You okay. know, the other thing, Shane, is that we, we, the reporters at the event on Monday were yeah. going, why, why are we doing this? Because <laughs> both the federal government and the provincial government committed to these projects a long time ago. Yeah. You, got a, you got a photo op with the premier and the prime minister, both with a SkyTrain rattling along in the background. And, you know, but, but, of course, today's politicians don't do photo ops. That was just <laughs> nasty old Christy Clark and Stephen Harper that did photo ops. It turns out that the reason I think they did it is because the issue of whether or not there should be a light rail line through Surrey isn't settled. There's yeah. a civic election going on there, and there are competing candidates for mayor and council that want LRT and want to go back to square one and switch to SkyTrain. So the issue isn't settled politically there. I think you had the the prime minister and the premier kind of trying to uh, co-opt the Surrey election and say, look, you're getting light rail whether you like it or not, and that's what we're doing. Yeah, that is an interesting debate, and one that's been fiery this week in the Lower Mainland is SkyTrain versus light rail. I don't know how you particularly solved that. I mean, costs for both are significant, slightly less for light rail, Keith. Well, light rail, one of the problems with light rail, and, and you're right, this, is, uh, this has become an issue in Surrey. Uh, radio station CKNW has uh, been running a lot of stuff where a lot of residents in Surrey do not want LRT because it leads to traffic congestion. Because look at Edmonton, uh, where you've got a, a light rapid transit uh, surface uh, rail system that causes enormous traffic jams, and people in Surrey, at least are worried that's exactly what's going to hit their municipality, and that's why they, um, a chunk of people do favor, as Vaughn says, an extension of the existing SkyTrain. LRT basically moves people with it around Surrey, within Surrey. SkyTrain moves people in and out of Surrey, and that's where the debate is. But uh, Trudeau and, and Horgan, uh, I agree with Vaughn, sort of co-opted the election, municipal election, by saying, well, the money's here for this project, and not indicating whether that money would be there for a SkyTrain extension. That's, that's going to be an interesting election issue in that town. Yeah, Absolutely. Back on the cost one, and, and one thing that, that caught my eye about your column yesterday is we have uh, costs that are f- about $500 million a kilometer for SkyTrain, 120 or $157 million for Surrey Light Rail. Um, and we don't have a good justification for how we got there. You point out less than 10 years ago, TransLink estimated it could build light rail in Surrey for $27 million a kilometre, about one-fifth of the current price tag. And, and yet your efforts to figure out exactly what's driving those costs up kind of hit a wall. Yeah, I mean, the reports that they've put out on this are, are, quote, sanitized, which means all the really interesting numbers are taken out of them, and they say that's competition, and they have to ask for bids and all that. Okay, fine, you know, that's what they're doing, and, and someday we'll be told. But the, we're told in general terms that the reason these prices are skyrocketing is because uh, the cost of boring tunnels underground for SkyTrain building stations underground, buying land is a huge cost Mm. in and around Metro Vancouver, and they say that's it. We'll have to take their word for it at this point, but it does mean the cost of expanding these systems is prohibitive as well. The idea in Vancouver is that once you get this line built to Arbuta Street, center part of the city, edge of the west side, really, um, then... They're going to take the line all the way out to UBC. Well, 
you know, you, you, you just take the math from today's prices, and of course, inflation isn't going to stop now, it would be about $4 billion to get the line out to UBC. In Surrey, the problem is that SkyTrain, the system that moves people, as Keith says, in and out of communities, Shane, hasn't been expanded in Surrey since yeah. 1994. If you're going to build light rail in and around Surrey, you're going to put off extending SkyTrain out to Langley, which is the next destination, probably another 10 years. So uh, by then, it'll have been 30 years since there have been any SkyTrain out there. So the light rail system in Surrey is controversial for a couple of reasons, but one of them is that you're pushing SkyTrain aside. Yeah, and in fairness, Surrey has been screwed on the transit front. Uh, they really didn't. They really got the short end of the stick on the SkyTrain side of things. Uh, one of these things, uh, one of these announcements, do outside of Metro Vancouver, where they're the talk of the town. But in rural BC, and, and I remember hearing uh, issues like this in Kamloops, is there's it stokes that fire of that rural urban jealousy. Oh look, they're pouring billions of dollars and nope. more big projects into Metro Vancouver, but we're not exactly working at light speed to even four lane the highway east of Kamloops, Keith. Well, I'm sure the listeners right now in your area, uh, Shane, are probably doing a bit of a slow burn because we're talking billions of dollars being poured into a relatively small area of the province uh, and not the same attention being paid to transportation needs elsewhere. But this is reflection, I think, again, and we've talked about this many times, is that uh, this this provincial government, this NDP government, is very much focused on the suburbs and and of Vancouver and Vancouver itself. It is a party defined by urban priorities. It is not a rural or regional party, and that's one of the one of the outcomes and results of that last provincial election, where where the NDP made its campaign strategy focused on appeasing the voters of uh, the suburbs of Vancouver with the argument they make life more affordable and easier. And transit does sort of answer part of that argument. And uh, one of the criticisms of the time was you're going to sacrifice the rest of the province. I don't think they're sacrificing the rest of the province, but the focus certainly of the Horgan government is not centered outside of Metro Vancouver. Yeah, yeah Shane, I got a note yesterday, and I think it's out there now on social media, from the new rural B.C. party, <laughs> the political party <laughs> yeah. that's starting up. And look, if I mean, think about it. You, yeah. get, you get proportional representation, as we may well do this fall. There might be a very good political interest for voters in rural and interior northern British Columbia to vote for a party, to send members to Victoria for a party that would go down and bargain for a fairer share of capital mm-hmm. spending for schools and roads and hospitals and all that. Uh, one of the things you're going to get, I think, if you get proportional representation, is more parties, more bargaining, more coalitions, and it might well be that, uh, you know, a, a a factor in the next provincial election is a party that none of us can see on the horizon at the moment. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, quick tangent on on the topic. Uh, this this opportunity, this announcement, reannouncement, did give uh, the premier some chance to to rub shoulders with the prime minister, sort of in the aftermath of the Kinder Morgan pipeline situation, which is still an, an ongoing issue. Uh, it seems like they kind of had uh, you know kind of a good time together. There didn't seem to be much tension between the two, Keith. No, in fact, uh, it was it was quite interesting to com- contrast that little chumminess with what happened yesterday, uh, which is ju- or the day before Justin Trudeau and uh, Rachel Notley's meeting. So Notley described her meeting with with Trudeau, and you'd think they were allies on the pipeline issue. She said it was a tense meeting, and, and I talked to a federal senior federal government official since then who said yes. Things have become a little prick, prickly between Notley and Trudeau, who share the same position on the pipeline, uh, compared to the, the uh, relationship between Trudeau and John Horgan. Horgan and Trudeau just basically have a brotherly, let's agree to 
disagree uh, uh, sort of a uh, point of view on the on the pipeline issue and prefer to talk about other things and Notley is increasingly under pressure to, to show to force the gov- the federal government to do something to get this pipeline expedited so uh, it's been more than a su- subtle shift between the relationships between these political leaders has almost been a bit of a flip here that Horgan and Trudeau seem to be closer together now than Notley and Trudeau despite uh, their various issues on on that particular pipeline again I take uh, tr- uh, Horgan's uh, position and and sort of nuanced position on this with Trudeau as more indication that he's not all, got all in on blocking the pipeline he's trying to make sure Trudeau's there with the maximum amount of resources spent on marine protection and if he can get that from the prime minister i think he can live with the pipeline being built notley on the other hand needs some action quick because she's facing an election earlier than john horgan is and as we've learned she plays hardball seriously uh vaughn it seemed to me and maybe i'm just reading into things it seemed to me premier horgan is acting like a man with a bit of a weight off his shoulders as this trans mountain issue kind of hangs in uh in suspension yeah, look, if construction isn't going to start on the Trans Mountain Pipeline, it's true that it has an economic impact on BC in terms of jobs, but you're right. Uh, the the less urgent that project is in BC, the easier it is on Horgan to, to sit back and concentrate on other issues. And one of the ones that I think he's looking for, you know, continuing federal support on is this big liquefied natural gas uh, terminal that BC wants very much, LNG Canada, to go ahead and get them at. We're hearing again this week that uh, the the would-be builders, Shell and its partners, are getting ready to make a final investment decision. The province is optimistic that it will be a yes. Um, The project still needs a waiver from the federal government on the steel tariffs that would be charged for building the, the, the modules that make the terminal offshore and bringing them in. But uh, the province is expecting that Ottawa will be cooperative on that. So that's a much bigger project for BC. I think Horgan would be very, very happy if he got that before the end of the year, and there's a good chance that he will. All right, let's take a quick break here on Radio NL's Inside Politics, and we'll pick up our conversation with Keith and Vaughn on the other side. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. For Kamloops Computer Center, you're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Welcome back. Uh, Negotiations between the province and uh, local governments have been sort of floating around the background for a little while. Uh, Fascinating yesterday to finally get a glimpse of what's being called by the Union of BC Municipalities, a guide to negotiations over getting a a marijuana tax sharing formula with the province. They want 40% of those revenues. They estimate that to be $50 million over two years and then some options after that over the longer term. Uh, Keith, uh, what did you think looking at this formula and what's the potential that this is what we might end up with at the end of the day. Oh, well, this is there to get something. Whether it's forty percent remains to be seen. Ontario is offering forty percent, and I think Quebec is lower. I think it's twenty-seven percent or something in Quebec. So it varies. Uh, the model varies across Canada. I don't think Mike, Hart, uh, Mike Farnworth, the Solicitor General in charge of the cannabis file for the BC government, has hit upon a number himself. It's about seventy-five million dollars a year. Is probably the, the generous estimate of how much it, it, uh, the province is going to take in. Uh, but there are issues with uh, arising from increased costs due to enforcement, uh, due to uh, um, public safety. Uh, Farmer says, look, we're, we're going to be incurring a hit here in terms of they have to establish all these new teams of enforcement officers, uh, fly, sort of flying squads to ensure people are... Uh, 
operating in a roguelike fashion that you only op- only licensed uh, operators can exist, and that'll be phased in over time. But there's costs incurred with that. So the province will probably push back on this a bit and say, well, wait a minute, we've got some extra costs that have to be covered by this new stream of revenue. On the other hand, $75 million uh, on a provincial budget is not a huge amount of money. So I think there's some flexibility there for, for Victoria to share at least some of that money with municipalities. Whether it's 40%, I'm not sure. Maybe it's a little less than that. But they're going to get some. Uh, what's really interesting or fascinating about this for me is we, we really don't know what the marijuana taxation revenue number is. All this is coming out of a line item in the budget where the province has uh, speculated it could be $125 million. Maybe it's less, maybe it's a whole lot more. We simply don't know, Vaughn. No, that's true. It's, uh, it's well, and the, the, ar- the coming argument on this, uh, is it only a month before... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. Uh, you know, the shock that's coming on this, I think. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, the, the, the cost sharing on this, uh, I think go- all governments are going to be short of money on dealing with this problem, and the, uh, the controversy around it is just starting. Yeah. The one thing that's in, to circle back to a point you made a minute ago, Keith, with all the revenue coming in, and I agree that there are upfront costs uh, that are pretty significant, both with the province and with local governments across the province. Uh, so I think there's a fair point in saying, hey, we need a chunk of the revenue to cover those costs off. But I think, you know, you get into years three, four, five, and onward, and I think a lot of those costs are front-end loaded. And then we're just going to see, okay, we've taken care of that, we've got sort of a normalized system, and then we're going to see this revenue just pouring down into the province and municipalities. I'm curious what happens with that. Well, no, that's a very good point. In fact, Mike Farnworth sort of agrees with that. He tells me, look, you have to look at this thing uh, on a multi-year basis because the first year is going to be almost chaos. Uh, this is a brand new thing that's about to happen. And nobody, re- you're right, nobody really knows what the revenue is going to be at the end of the day. Nobody really knows what the costs are going to be to, to the government and to enforcer, enforcement side and compliance side. That will take at least two to three years in Farnworth's estimation to shake down until we get to a, to a, a, a system where it's somewhat predictable uh, going forward. I mean, the government has lived, for example, with the, the provincial sales tax for years and can make some pretty good estimations of how much money it's going to cost, mm. how the system works, and it's pretty seamless. And it's, uh, but, you know, it's taken years to get there, and it's going to take years for us to get to a seamless situation seamless uh, system when it comes to cannabis uh, retail sales and enforcement and compliance and that will sh- uh, change over a period of years. So the, the amount of money the municipalities get may very well be different from year one uh, compared to year three or four and I think it's, a, it's an ongoing evolving system that's going to have a lot of changes that aren't there in the year one but by year five uh, will probably be uh, a significantly different system. Now, this is a two-year formula. In the longer term, the UBCM says, okay, we either make this the status quo or we float uh, raising the PSD on marijuana products no more than 10% at 7% now, so what it would be about 8 9 maybe 10 whatever it is. And that increase, the revenue from the increase alone flows back to local governments. Uh, that is an argument in and of itself. But one of the things that stems from that, I think, Vaughn, is, is this, this the angle that uh, you have to be careful for the taxation. The end game here is you want to get rid of the black market and we tax the hell out of the stuff, then we're not really going to get that mission done. Yeah, and there's two things, you're right, there's two things that sort of cautionary from other jurisdictions, and one of them is uh, you, you continue the black market or you drive uh, sales into the black market, and the other one is the problem they've hit in the state of Oregon, 
where they've got a glut of production. The state is producing, I think the last time I checked, like seven or eight times as much marijuana as there is for domestic consumption. Now, they say that won't happen here in Canada because one of the reasons there's overproduction in Oregon is because they're exporting it <laughs> to neighboring states that don't have legalization. Uh, but the other thing is that they they license so many producers down there. And, of course, everybody jumped in because, man, you're going to make a bucket of money on this. And you've now uh, prices have crashed because of it because, as I say, there's they've got far more marijuana than anybody knows what to do with, including smoking it. Absolutely. Lots of interesting things to come. October 17th, a little more than a month from now, it descends on us like an avalanche. Uh, we'll take a quick break, get caught up to the news at the bottom of the hour, and keep up a conversation with Keith and Vaughn on the other side here on Inside Politics. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Welcome to Inside Politics. We're talking to Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer in about, what, an hour and a half from now. Finance Minister Carol James will unveil her quarterly report, something I know, Keith, you highlighted on this show last week is something that could be uh, contain some interesting information in it. Well, there's two numbers I'm going to, well, one number in particular I'm going to be interested in, and that is the amount of money now forecast to be raised from transfer tax revenues. The government had been banking back in February, and we asked Carol James this at the budget lockup, how, on the one hand, you're hoping to uh, curtail housing prices, lower housing prices, at the same time you're now projecting an increase in the amount of money you're going to make from the housing market. Uh, they projected a $100 million increase in property transfer tax revenues. Well, the market has, hasn't collapsed, but it's near collapsed in Metro Vancouver. Housing sales have, have slumped to a trickle of what they were. Uh, when that budget came down. And logically, one would think that means there's going to be a heck of a lot less money arriving, being derived from that, uh, those housing sales coming in government. So that's the number I'm going to be looking at. Uh, is it going from a $100 million increase to a two, $300 million decrease? And once you start talking money like that, uh, then you start looking at the bottom line. Carol James has budgeted a surplus of a little more than $200 million on a $50 billion-plus budget, which is pretty razor-thin. Uh, she has built in a $900 million cushion, uh, a big contingency of a fund of $550 million and a $350 million uh, revenue forecast cushion, an allowance. Uh, but the wildfires are going to eat up probably $400 million of, uh, of that of that cushion. Uh, maybe there's some other tax uh, implications that may eat up a part of it as well, which means that she can't afford a big slide in transfer tax revenues, otherwise that budget will slip into deficit. I don't think it will be a deficit. I still think she's going to be in a, in a surplus, but I think she may be precariously close to one. I wonder how much of the uh, hot real estate activity outside of Metro Vancouver, as far as the property t- transfer tax, will sort of impact those numbers. Uh, Vaughn, what are you looking for? Uh, same kind of thing. The government is going to be tacking closer to just being balanced rather than in a comfortable surplus. They're using up money, and they have to, particularly with the forest fires. Uh, it's early still to gauge the impact of the government's effort to drive down housing prices. They've certainly driven down the volume of sales in the biggest markets in the province. And there's still stuff to come, right? We still don't have the speculation tax. Uh, Municipalities are still arguing about some of their tax changes. Uh, We're early in the year. This is just the first three months of the year, um, April, May, June. So, uh, you know, we've still got 
some ways to go. And the other thing, of course, is that the New Democrats have got to start on keeping some very expensive promises, but they've not by any means fully funded them. Uh, we haven't got the poverty reduction plan yet. We'll get that this fall. We haven't got the uh, all of the child care initiatives, uh, social housing, a um, bunch of other projects that are in the works. So, uh, you know, we, we certainly felt that they did very well with their with the public accounts that we got a few weeks ago. Uh, the results of the first year under the NDP, it was nine months under the NDP, and three under the Liberals. They they managed everything there and some big took some big hits on hydro and ICBC, but uh, now it's all them and all their projects, and they've raised expectations high about spending. If the revenues aren't there, and they may not be, uh, they're going to have to start reining in some of their own expectations. Uh, let's talk about municipal politics as we try and jam a few more cop, uh, topics in here before we have to say goodbye to you guys. Uh, Daniel Fontaine, who we all know, is uh, running for uh, city council in New Westminster now. Uh, he's raised an issue this week that uh, he's alarmed by the number of people he's running in. Don't have any idea there's a civic election coming next month. Uh, he says moving up the election date to October is uh, taking four weeks from the campaign. The proportional representation thing running alongside it is distracting and confusing. And campaign finance rules are restricting advertising, which means pro- profiles of candidates are, are not as substantial as, as they otherwise might be. Uh, low turnout is, is nothing unusual for municipal elections, Keith, but do you think it could actually go lower? I think there's a chance of that. I think uh, the, the compressed campaign is one thing. Uh, people don't pay attention to politics until after Labor Day anyway. So I, I think it's, you know, it's kind of pointless to, to gauge public opinion in August when people really are sort of detached from, from public policy. Uh, interest will heat up, but turnout's always low. It's always around 40% in, in um, like Vancouver. Uh, it's a little larger in uh, in slightly smaller towns that actually uh, paradoxically has a has a higher turnout the suburbs are where the turnout traditionally is really low well on you've got a whole bunch of incumbents are not running again a bunch of mayors in metro vancouver and elsewhere in the province as well are not seeking re-election part of the problem i think is there's a, an extended term now there's an extended commitment to, uh, on on people to commit to four years uh, people are balking at that it's hard to run campaigns now because you're checkered uh, on how or you're checked on how much money you can spend. It's very low spending limits. You can't really advertise. So I think uh, turnout is always a challenge in municipal elections, and I think it's going to be even bigger challenge this time. I think it will be lower than usual, and I think uh, interest seems to be body uh, depending on what the issue is. And I think uh, there's going to be a lot of people elected. On the basis of very small, I would not. Nobody's going to get a majority. Very small pluralities. I mean, a lot of candidates will get in there with you know thirty-two percent of the vote, representing a very small number of people who actually live in the towns they represent. Doesn't look good. Yeah. Uh, on the other side of that, we have these campaign spending limits and new rules governing uh, the banning of union and corporate donations, that sort of thing. But uh, you show me a rule, and I'll show you somebody who's going to find a way to work around it, as seems to be the case, uh, especially in Metro Vancouver, or in Vancouver proper, I should say, as there's some issues now, some rather large signage that seems to be skirting the rules. Vaughn? Well, they're getting into the market before the restrictions kick in, and uh, so this is kind of a a last fling at uh, major donations and major advertising. But the the point Keith made is that you've got this huge turnover that you have, a lot of the familiar names that people are used to voting for in a lot of places, especially in Metro Vancouver, just aren't going to be on the ballot this time. Uh, Of course, most of those are at-large councils, and there's a lot of turnover there as well. So I think, yes, I think this is a uh, the combination uh, of the competition from the... 
the PR referendum, the lack of profile for a lot of the candidates, the limitations on spending, and the truncated campaign add up to, I think, good reason why people are concerned about a low turnout in this civic election. And I think the other thing is uh, you, you may get a lot of people that, that just eke into office on a handful of votes because the competition will be so tight. Uh, final question to you, Keith. Uh, BC Ferries, an interesting profile by our friend Rob Shaw. Uh, record number of passenger and vehicle traffic, but uh, conversely, lower profit margins. Uh, seems like the same old story of government interference. Well, the, the NEP is finding out that its position on ferries in opposition is, was completely pointless, which was that they wanted to make ferries, you know, the, the proverbial part of the highway system, which is you know, just never going to happen. They made a lot of promises on ferries that gave the impression it was going to be a radically different system. But no, the BC ferry system is fairly entrenched, and it means you, you can change some things around the edges, but fundamentally you're not going to make a huge change. So they brought back the seniors' discount. Uh, and they froze fares. That's going to have a revenue uh, impact, obviously, so the, the revenues are down. Now, uh, one thing to be fair to the NDP, and nobody's been reporting this part, is they actually increased the subsidy to BC ferries by $27 million uh, this fiscal year, which is, I think, a record increase in one year from year to year. So they've greatly increased the amount of money they've given BC ferries, but they have, uh, in, you know, credited consumers and ferry, ferry users by bringing back that seniors' discount. Uh, and uh, by by freezing fares and in some cases redu- reducing fares, so there's a financial impact that comes from that. But uh, uh, the NDP is discovering that BC ferries, like BC Hydro, like these giant companies, are sort of these almost independent fiefdoms, and there's not a heck of a lot you can do about it. And uh, Vaughn, we'll be talking to Glenn Hansman after the next commercial break. But uh, you pointed out that uh, as we look at bargaining with the teachers, uh, the Me Too clauses could rear their head. Me Too clauses in public sector contracts usually mean that the the unions that sign early get a clause that says, and if you give anybody else more than us, we get that too. We have seen this year one of the most sweeping Me Too clauses that's ever been done in a public sector contract. The GEU settled for 6% basic pay increase over three years, and they have a deal that if anybody else gets more than 6% over three years, they get it as well. I am. I would be astonished if Glenn Hansman and the BCTF, when they go into negotiations, aren't going to be asking for more than six percent over three years. But not going to get it. That Me Too clause. That's a tough one uh, to get over that, because it would be a big hit right across the budget if the teachers get more and a bunch of other unions are in line to get more as well. Interesting times, uh, Von Keith. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye bye. There's Von Palmer and Keith Baldry take a quick break here on Inside Politics and dive into education issues with BCTF President Glenn Hansman right after this. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Good morning. A new school year is about a few days old as we speak, and I wanted to bring on the BCTF president, Glenn Hansman, to discuss any and all education issues. Good morning, Glenn. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad to have you on. It's been about about a week since you've been on the Kamloops Airwaves? Uh, Something like that. (laughs) We had a really great uh, summer conference in Kamloops, and um, now school's back in session everywhere, except for those places in the province, unfortunately, that have been impacted by fire. So, yeah. so we're watching those places very carefully and uh, thinking about our members and the families and the kids working there. 
All right. Uh, class size and composition was uh, year one last school year uh, while there were some uh, improvements and, and headway made and the overall education experience you will tell me has been much improved. There was also some wrinkles and some issues uh, that need some ironing out. Uh, we have made some headway in some of them and I know the new school year isn't you know quite entirely up and running. We're what two or three days old but uh, to you off the top uh, outside of the usual you know teacher shortages or anything like that is there any new or interesting issues that are on your radar so far this year or no? Well, the grade 10 curriculum is brand new this year, and we're really pleased with the rollout of K-9 in terms of how that was embraced over the past three years by teachers around the province. But, um, you know, going along with the grade 10 curriculum now, we're sort of getting into some good conversations with the Ministry of Education around how do we get accurate, up-to-date, and modern resources into teachers' hands so that students, regardless of where they go to school in the province, have opportunities that the curriculum promises and uh, because of budget shortfalls that school districts had for so long under the previous government. It's a bit, of, a bit of an uphill battle and just inconsistent around the province, but we're starting to have some good dialogue now around making sure that there's Indigenous uh, resources that are available, looking at the sexual health curriculum and sort of other aspects that perhaps were neglected or teachers might not have opportunities in the communities to be able to get to. So there's a long way to go on that. I know there's a lot of outdated old stuff that's kicking around in schools and broken equipment and things like that. But um, hopefully with a bit more pushing and a bit more dialogue, we can get some traction on that this school year. Uh, the class size and composition has kind of uh, compounded a problem, especially for, uh, I'll use Kamloops as an example, uh, has a, an older infrastructure, a school infrastructure out there they're trying to deal with, uh, and also an increasing student population. So now you have class size caps, which means you need more classroom space, which means you need more teachers. So now you're looking for more teachers, and you're trying to find new classroom space and older buildings that don't necessarily uh, seem adaptable to that. Uh, around the province uh, and here in Kamloops, Glenn, how much of that is still a problem this year? I know we're getting four portables, and we're hunting for some extra teachers with another 180 kids so far in the system. Well, what you said is a really good summary of the problem. I guess the other um, angle I'd add to it is just sometimes where the population is increasing is not where the schools are. And so student enrollment in BC is going up. Overall, we have more families coming from out of province. Birth rates are up, but people aren't necessarily moving where the schools are. So that's kind of creating an additional challenge for some school districts. But you know, overall, we're still having some of the same challenges this, as this time last year, where we don't have enough teachers, period, in many communities around the province. And sometimes that's just French immersion, which has been a long-standing issue, having enough people. But we're just in contact with our local in Dawson Creek today, that Peace River South School District that represents Dawson Creek and Tumpa Ridge and Chetwin. Uh, it's a fairly small community, and they have 15 positions that haven't even been filled yet, and several that have been filled by people who aren't even certified teachers but are just there on what is called a letter of permission, people with university degrees but aren't trained teachers. And we saw that popping up in places like Sam and Arm and Armstrong communities that we've never had to use um, that provision of the school act before. And it's, it's a problem that you know, we still continue to call for more provincial coordinate, coordination so that School districts in remote areas of the province and in the Okanagan have a fighting chance to be able to recruit people from out of province and, and keep them here. Uh, where are we at with the teacher shortage? I know Rob Fleming told me he feels the problem is largely solved, although there's still a little bit of work left to do. Uh, but as I mentioned, we still are short some teachers and the demand is increasing. Uh, 180 new kids in the school district, probably a little more by the time the headcount is done, which means, uh, and I assume that it's going to be sort of a similar story in some other school districts, they're going to be hunting for more teachers than they thought as they look at some of these increases. So how does that factor into the problem and where are we? 
Well, we are a bit troubled that the province is using some of its same messaging from this time last year. I mean, it was understandable that in the first year, with language coming back, that it hasn't been used in a long time, restoring thousands of teaching positions to the system, things might take a while. But we're now in year two. It's the second year that the NDP government is responsible for, and we can't just be taking a wait-and-see approach. So there's been conflicting numbers out there. I know there was uh, some quote earlier this week in terms of 80% of positions are filled. Well, what about the other 20%? Um, and we know that there are still hundreds of jobs posted on the centralized Make the Future website, um, reports from the field of jobs simply not being filled, or jobs that had been filled, but now the teacher who had taken the job has now accepted employment in another school district. And so that interprovincial domino effect that's occurring is going to continue to occur so long as we don't have enough teachers in the province. If people, understandably, look to different communities where there's more amenities, move to larger urban centers, move where their kids are going to university. There's a variety of factors involved in that, but the jobs are not all filled, and we can't be going through another school year like last one where we get to December, January, February, and the permanent teacher isn't in the classroom, um, and where we have regular shortages of substitute or TTOCs uh, in schools, which uh, really resulted in disruption to special education services quite regularly in many places. So would you say then, would you classify it as still a serious problem this year, Glenn, or how would you characterize the extent of it? It's, it's you know, still work to be needed. I mean, how would you sum it up? It's still a serious problem. I mean, there's no other way of describing it. We can't minimize um, the concern, and parents and students shouldn't be putting up with this for a second year. You know, we're always going to have challenges in some of the remote and rural places in the province, particularly in specialty areas, but then let's do something about it. It, The French immersion shortage is nothing new. Um, All the provinces across Canada have a shortage when it comes to French immersion. So what are we going to do to grow more within British Columbia, taking the existing workforce and providing retraining opportunities, creating more uh, teacher education program opportunities in smaller and remote places in the province so people don't have to travel to French Storage or the Lower Mainland to get those qualifications? I mean, we, we can do these things. It's been done in other sectors before. And the demand for French immersion and the need to fill specialty senior secondary positions with qualified, certified people is, um, is also not new. And parents and the public expect people to be qualified, know what they're doing, and, uh, and stay in the communities in the long term. Uh, we're almost out of time, but I do want to talk a little bit about bargaining really quickly here. I know you want to get to the table early, ideally around Thanksgiving, no later than December. Uh, I spoke to Rob Fleming about that. Uh, his holdup seems to be uh, the municipal elections October 20th, and then he can see what cards he's been dealt and move forward from there. Does that seem reasonable to you or no? Well, we're a bit puzzled by that, given that QPK-12 has wrapped up their bargaining. Um, trustee elections didn't seem to be an impediment when it came to negotiating a new agreement with support staff. Now, that hasn't been ratified yet, but um, they did reach a deal um, first in June and then a second version of it in July. Um, you know, but either way, it, we are very keen to make sure that there is a negotiated collective agreement that meets the needs of our members, addresses some of the equity issues around the province before the end of the school year. And so it would be a great shame if we didn't get there because not enough time was um, used at a bargaining table in the fall or in the early winter. And so we're, we're still you know, keen to get their ASAP. Uh, we have a team appointed. We'll be setting our, formally setting our objectives uh, sometime in the next two months, and we can speed things up on our side 
um, if there's an agreement to get to the table. So um, hopefully there'll be a meeting of minds on that, and we can get going because there's a lot of work on, and uh, and you know we're we're feeling very hopeful, um, and appreciate the positive tone between Minister Fleming and ourselves. But there's some tough issues that we're going to have to chew on in this round, uh, not the least of which is how we navigate through 60 different sets of collective agreement language that was restored by the courts, but haven't had a chance to change in about a quarter of a century. All right. Glenn, we're out of time. I always appreciate talking to you. Thanks so much for uh, spending some time with us. Thank you. That's Glenn Hansman, president of the BC Teachers Federation, and that wraps up Inside Politics for today. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL next week. From CHNL in Kamloops, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Local News Now.